my mindset changed. Um, it definitely was like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go full noise at this, and I'm gonna stop at nothing to make a career out of this, and that's sort of when it started for me. Hello and welcome to the Off Field Rugby Pod. My name is Brian Moylet. I'm a former Irish underage international, and this podcast is for young rugby players. I chat with players and coaches at the top of the game about their journey and get their insights so that you can learn from them. Please follow me on Instagram at offfieldrugby, share the pod with friends, and make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Today I'm chatting with Isa Nasiwa, who played with the Auckland Blues and then later with Leinster, where he won three Heineken Cups over two spells. In the pod, Isa talks about shifting his mindset in his early 20s, the benefit to him of having a mentor earlier on and what he believes it takes to be a successful rugby player. We chat about the success he had at Leinster and Isa talks about the ingredients for that success, how they sustained it and why he feels Leo Cullen is a genius coach and he explains why. Isa also talks about how you deal with pressure as a rugby player, how you deal with making mistakes in games, his plans to return to rugby in the future, and lots more. So here's episode number 44 with Isa Nasiwa. A lot of people stress about money. Where should you be investing? Are you prepared if there's a crash? And loads more. And if you're not an expert, finances can be really daunting. I know the people at Sparks Wealth, and they're brilliant. What they do is they educate you on your finances without any jargon. They create a personalized plan for you and manage your money so that it's working for you and so that you don't need to be worrying about it. You can book a free, no obligation Zoom call now on their website, sparkswealth.ie. So how is life now working in financial services? Oh man, it's been a journey and it still is a journey. Um, it's, yeah, you know, I just say like in inverted commas, you know, going into the real world, it's a big shock to the system and a big change. And, um, um, but I've really enjoyed it. Um, but it's always, it's always about understanding that you are on a journey. Um, there's no, there's no win in sight. Um, uh, not about winning like a game of rugby. Rugby is such a finite game you know um where the real world and um you know business is it's just a journey that you're on and continually on it's not a hard and fast rule of winning um that's a big change in getting used to and how did you find switching into that like when you did retire i mean i was ready for it um i was ready for a change and i was ready for a new challenge and um you know, I was probably mentally in the right space to try something different and try something new. You know, I had the benefit of um, and the luxury of retiring twice. So I, I had a leg up second time around. So, you know, some people unfortunately don't have that um, sort of experience or um, don't have that luxury. But yeah, I definitely probably prepared myself mentally for the second time around. And I think um, that helped the transition and being surrounded by good people. Um is probably the other kicker that it's made um, my journey enjoyable to date. So with the two retirements you mentioned there, why did you step away the first time? I think you were 31. Mm. Matt, I was, um, you know, I had a young family. You know, I had a, I had a wife that, that, you know, we had just had twins and, and, and our third. And, you know, it's hard being that far away from home. And, um you know, my wife is really tight with her family, her grandparents at the time. And, you know, unfortunately, one of her grandparents did pass away, who was more like a parent to her, um, probably about eight months after getting back to New Zealand. And that's eight months that I'll never get back. You know, the fact that we have photos of our, our kids with their grandparents, um, you know, you can never, there, there's no price on that. So, you know, at that time, um, I just won five trophies in five years um, with Leinster and, to be honest, I didn't want to play for anyone else. Uh, I couldn't see myself, um, you know, stepping away and playing for another club. And, man, I was just motivated to you know, get back to New Zealand. And, you know, I did walk back into a rugby environment, which in hindsight probably wasn't a good thing. Um, 
but you know at that time it was the right decision for me and my family and uh you know things change and things happen for a reason but at that given time you know I was only 31 but um you know I was pretty um you know I was grateful for the opportunity that I just had at Leinster um happy with the successful time and what we had sort of achieved um I mean and I was ready to step away and it sounds like you had kind of rugby in perspective then at that point and another thing you say when people step away is that they might find it difficult like their identity as a rugby player but would you feel that was the case that rugby was just a thing that you did and you didn't find it so difficult to step away in your prime yeah i um you know i wasn't like a schoolboy star you know i came through a club system um and then you know if you look at the difference now, I probably didn't actually get crack it or get through at least until sort of 22, 23, where um, I didn't really hold my my whole identity to rugby. There's a past portion of it that definitely did. Um, but I think having kids really grounds you and puts a lot of things into perspective. And I do not tell young guys to go out and have kids. It's the opposite of what I'm saying, but you know, I had different distractions. Um, I studied first. Um, I completed my studies. A lot of guys that do exceptionally well and perform at a really elite level uh, for nation and for club and for country um, have another distraction outside of rugby. Um, they're focusing on studies. So I firmly believe that from early on Um and I had already gone through that, but I think for me, um, yes, my kids taught me a lot um, and, and it shaped who I am and probably benefited me on the rugby field. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it, put a, it put rugby in perspective, that's for sure. Um, but I did retire and then had learnings from a different environment and then stepped back into it. So, you know, that whole journey in itself was a big learning curve for where I am today. And when you did step away and you mentioned you went back into the rugby environment, how was that going in with the Blues? We were there for 18 months. Yeah, uh, not great. Um, and that's not great, not because of anyone else other than sort of where I was at. Um, you know, comparison is the thief of joy and 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 it's not, you know, when you went from a, a winning five trophies in five years under Michael Checker and Joe Schmidt, and then obviously you come back to a different environment, automatically you're comparing around why why don't you do it this way? Why don't you do it that way? Um, and that was the naivety of probably how I where I was at 31. Um, and I had to it took it took 18 months about stepping back into an environment to actually go ah. Oh, and sort of, you know, the light bulb's going off saying, hey, there's other ways to skin a cat, but there's also other ways of doing things. And it, it took me nine months out of that, 18 months to sort of actually realize where I was at. So, um, you know, I that was all a big learning curve for me. Um, you know, and if I had my time again, um, I wouldn't do anything differently because, uh, you know, all those lessons I, I took, took with me going forward. But it was a big learning curve understanding the sort of a different environment even one that i was used to is in the blues but really understanding a different environment and i guess understanding everything that the players don't see um you know and i'm talking about politics and you know all, all those sort of things you just don't see as a rugby player because you just got your blinkers on worrying about performing and with their uh, different cultures how is it going from new zealand up to leinster when you know when you did when you were younger Man, it's, um, you know, when you when you grow up in New Zealand, and I think all rugby players would feel like this, um, New Zealanders that travel abroad, um, you, you have a set of blinkers on because all you hear are the messages and the wordings and the themes from New Zealand rugby. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that that's what you're used to. So you, you go north, I guess, with... Uh, a chip on your shoulder thinking that it's the better way of doing things. Um, and, and I speak to, I just got off a call with a guy in France and cast and he just said, well, you know, I was exactly like you, you know, when I played super rugby, I thought it was the best competition in the world. Um, thought it was, it was all about that. And it took him to step away. And he's only been up in France in the top 14 for about uh, 10 months now. And he's like, wow, there's, yeah, there's, there's cool coaches. There's cool players. There's, you know, stadiums full um, and none of that is in New Zealand. So I think it's it's all a learning experience. You have to sort of go go with the mindset to, um, you know, 
to, to learn. Um, but when you're talking about cultures, wow, like, you know, if you talk about identities and sports, um, you know, professionalism has has sucked a lot of that out of um, out of clubs and out of cultures. But you go to a place like Ireland and a place like Leinster, um, where the majority of the teams are born and raised in their provinces, um, the identity is 10 times stronger um, than it was down here in New Zealand. With, say, playing different positions, like I saw you were assigned as a 10 for Leinster. Some people think it's a, a curse to be able to play in lots of different positions and be moved about. But for you, it seemed to not phase you. Um, man, I was a shithouse 10, really. Johnny Sexton, who's a good mate of mine, let me know that. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, like the, the 10, a 10 in New Zealand is very different to a 10 in Europe. Um, and dare I say, like, you know, I... It wasn't wasn't my my better position, you know. I might have worked in Super Rugby. It definitely didn't suit, um, you know, European rugby. Um, but it it can be a curse. It can be a curse, um, and you sometimes even see that in loose forwards. Um, in that, you know, you're not an eight. Maybe you're a six. Every now and then, you might get chucked at a seven. It's no different in backs that are classed as a utility. But I think I was always it gave me a better understanding of a of the game, um, and I it gave me a better understanding about you know how a ten works, how a twelve works, how wingers work, what what a fullback is doing. Um, it gives you a real good understanding, and I guess it it made me better in each position. Um, and I've seen a few coaches and a real a, a few smart coaches. And include this in their trainings. Um, every now and then they'll flip it on the head and chuck their tens out on a wing or chuck their yeah, their centers in at first five. And I see some coaches do this every now and then. I'm like, now that is a smart coach because it gives you a real understanding and perspective of what each other's are thinking. So I don't know how I sort of um, fell into that mold, but I think I was always motivated to be in the starting team. And it didn't didn't bother me where I played as long as I played my part in the team and then was in the starting team. Um, then I sort of just kept doing that. Um, you know, I got no issues taking one for the team and playing a position or playing out of position just so someone better than me could be on the team. Um, I was always for that, but I always wanted to push hard enough to say, Hey, I want a Jersey. It doesn't matter to me what number it is. Um, you know, but I'll, I'd motivate the younger guys to say, come and get this off my back. Um, and if they did, or so be it. I'll try and go for another position. And I think that's sort of, sort of how I push myself, um, you know, my whole career. Yeah, 100%. I think it's so good for young players, like even in school and that, to play different positions. And mm-hmm. it's tough, though. You, you're you out of your depth, and it's so easy to just always play 10, always play 8, always mm-hmm. play in certain positions. Yeah, it's it's so true. But imagine a winger that's been a winger all through school, comes out of school, and then if they're really good enough, you get thrust into Super Rugby or Mitre 10 or Pro 14 or Europe. And if you've never caught the ball at first receiver, <laughs> your perspective of being a winger is your head's in a box and you only believe that this is the one way to do it. Um, so, yeah, I think I don't think it's a bad thing, people moving around and trying different positions. And did you play any other sports growing up? Yeah, I played loads of sports. I was um, I was big into basketball. I was big into cricket. Um, would have done athletics when I was younger. Um, so yeah, I played loads of different codes and loads of different sports um, all the way up until my late years at school. So um, and I encourage that. I really do. I think um, cross sport people or those the elite of the elite were always good at other sports. Um, hand-eye coordination, you can you know, you pull it back to, but I don't think it's a bad thing. People play, kids playing loads of different sports just to give them a good base. Gymnastics, that's what I should have done. I see that in my daughters and wow, like the flexibility and balance and what they do in gymnastics um, is phenomenal. I think if I had my time again, I would have I would have got up on the beam there. Yeah, and the strength as well. I coach girls now, and some of them that have done gymnastics, they do they can do flips and back somersaults. All this carry on. Matt, I was I was with my daughter at a um, gymnastics training all through the school holidays, a more intense training, and there was these um, guys that were 
uh, 13, 14, 15, shredded to bits. Yeah. But the strongest, I have stronger than any rugby players that I've seen. And then I see five-year-olds and six-year-olds doing dips on the bars. I'm like, yeah. how are these people doing this? Um, these these young kids just come, like, as you say, multiple flips and their strength is phenomenal, um, really is. Yeah. And when did rugby then start? Like you say, you didn't crack it till 22, 23. When did rugby start kind of taking over a bit? Oh, so I went, you know, I wasn't the schoolboy star. I literally played rugby at school just so we could go out on the weekends. Um, and we had a pretty good school team. I didn't make the rep teams through that, but I guess I went, I really wanted to go to university and I enrolled in a bachelor of PE um, and, and, and did that. And I really wanted to go to uni and I really wanted to do my OE um, and, you know, head off to Europe and stuff. But I guess I started playing okay code or okay club rugby um i guess it was and it was from there that uh one uh, back in sort of auckland Colts or auckland 21s days a coach sort of said like you know um why don't you give it a crack and a guy called shane king who i um had very early on said you know why don't you actually give it a go and i turned them down i said no nah, i can't be bothered i want to focus on university i want to go overseas um but if it wasn't for him, um, I guess clipping me around the ear and say, "Give this a crack," that it was it wasn't until twenty two that I actually was like, "Oh well, this can actually be something." And in my first year of Mitre Ten Cup or New Zealand Cup or ITM, whatever it was called way back then, um, even then I hadn't really taken it seriously. Um, I think it took um, sort of missing out on a super rugby squad, you know, back then the squads were so small, but missing out and clearly missing out and seeing people around me make it, I think that motivated me because I was like, ah, you know, shit, I can't believe I'm not involved, but it's not, it's not anyone's fault, but your own for not, you know, taking it seriously. And it was probably around 2004 um, that I probably, that I did start taking it seriously. And like, we had a pretty bad season that season um, with, with Auckland, but I, personally, I probably had a better season and it did me enough to get noticed. And as soon as I knew that I had worked hard enough and that I played well and got selected um, sort of by Joe Schmidt and the blues for the first time, that's when I was like, yeah, uh, my, my mindset changed. Um, it definitely was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go full noise at this and I'm going to, stop at nothing to make a career out of this and that's sort of when it started for me but you know that's that's four years later than sort of schoolboy stars were were cracking it and so when you had that like mindset change did you like lifestyle change as well did you yeah yeah there was there was definitely a lifestyle change um i look back and go yeah i probably did it the wrong way but you know I didn't know anything other than to go, I'm going to focus at this 100% and uh, everything else is irrelevant. Um, and what I mean by that, you know, I I prioritized rugby over my study. I kept continuing my study, but not probably as best as I could. Um, you know, my day from waking up to everything you eat to sleeping in the afternoons, thinking that, that at that time that was to me the most important thing was to rest and recover. Um you you get sucked into the professional environment where you're like, wow, I'm actually getting paid to do this, and I've got this luxury of um, of doing it, and everything else was sort of irrelevant. But you know, I didn't, you know, I was maybe I was playing well back then, and uh, you know, with the blues and stuff. But again, it was quite a immature mindset if I look back compared to what I see professionals doing now. Um, but you know, it was a different time also. Um, I guess booze was probably still um, alcohol and booze was still, you know, pretty front of mind, even way back then. A lot of that changed over my career. So for the time, I thought I was doing things right, um, you know, but I probably could have done a lot of things better. And how did the drinking change towards, like, say, from the start to the end? Oh, man, a lot of a lot around um, drinking, uh, nutrition um you know recovery all those things that we learned along the way um was pretty new but you know i look at doug howlett as being a huge influence on me and we used to call him tp because he was the true professional and he was doing things back then way before everyone else and he was performing and it 
as I say, it took like a year of learning to go, ah, you know, I think I'm doing things right, but there's guys here that are doing things way better than me. And um, he was pretty influential on on my probably mindset without him sort of knowing um, just just having good mentors like that or good people around to sort of model yourself off. Um, then it's up to you to have the balls and the sort of mindset to go and do it yourself. Um, because a lot don't at the end of the day, a lot can get, get there on talents and then probably not want to go that little bit extra to work hard. So you saw when you were playing with the blues with him, was it you saw the way he was living his life and kind of thought, well, if I'm going to give this a proper crack, that's how I have to live my life. Exactly. Like spot on, man. Like he was, he was meticulous around his nutrition. He was meticulous around what he was eating. He was doing things. He was recovering way better than other people. Um, you know, he was wearing, you know, back then he was doing pool recoveries. He was, you know, wearing his skins. He was planning his meals um, where the rest was sort of just doing little bits of it. But like it was sort of those one percenters that really made a difference. He was constantly doing it and it was his habit. Um, so, you know, that is what you need to see. Um, otherwise, you're just not exposed to anything. Yeah, I saw a quote there from from Johnny Sexton. who mentioned that he learned from you that being a rugby player was every day versus just when you were training. Mm. Mm. Um, it's it's a lifestyle. <laughs> it's a lifestyle. And it's not just, you know, you look at the, you know, rest in peace. I look at Kobe Bryant and, and you know, there's, there's elite players, but then there's the elite of the elite. Um, and if you want to be in that category, then you've got to do things way better than, or at a way higher standard than the rest. Um, but it's, you can't just turn it on when you walk through the door of your complex or cross that white line um, because you only play an 80 minute game of rugby in a week. The rest of the time and the rest of the decisions that you make around what you eat, how you sleep, um, all those lifestyle decisions, they're the things that impact the game, the 80-minute game of rugby at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, then you've got to do that consistently and you've got to do it every day and then you've got to do it in every match. So you can't just turn it on and then turn it off. It's a real lifestyle decision that you have to commit to. Um but then even in that, you've got to find balance. Do you know what I mean? So it's, you know, there's no there's no single handbook or playbook to make it work. Um, and everyone's situations and living situations and environments are different. But, you know, it's a, it's a lifestyle choice that you have to commit to at the end of the day. Yeah, it's interesting with the balance as well. I think you, you have to try your best, don't you? And then the switching off is important at times when you're not switched on. Man, your, your mind can only handle so much. Um and, um, you know, there's, there's so many different analogies, but like, you know, you can't drive a car into the ground um, and let it run out of petrol and not service it and expect it to fully, you know, just carry on as normal. Like, the, you've really got to build in the, the really positive and good distractions and the switch off time because it will make you perform better mentally and physically when the crunch time happens. So, that's that again. That again is probably one of the biggest learnings I had um, from my younger days at the Blues to sort of, um, um, you know, more my I guess my mature days at Leinster is that that's just another journey that you've got to learn yourself. Um, whether it's through trial and error or really good ups and really good downs, highs and lows, um, but finding that balance is is key in the. The earlier on you can be exposed to it and see it and see the benefits of it, the the better you will be. Um, and that's what I sort of promote to a lot of guys right now. What were, you mentioned their highs and lows, what were some of the lows, challenges you had throughout the career? Um, some of the lows, like, you know, if I'm, I, I wouldn't say I had too many real low lows, you know, it's, you put things into perspective. If you're losing in a semi-final or losing in a final, you're doing way better than 40 other teams. There's 40 other teams that want to be there. So they're big lows. But, um, you know, losing in two semi-finals is always tough. <laughs> you do so much through the year and then, um, you know, lost in two semi-finals in, um, 
you know, the second to last career, but you then you fast forward sort of 24 months or 12 months and you go unbeaten and win the double. So those lows are hard. I guess uh, dealing with injury, I didn't have too many injuries, but when you deal with injury, um, you're quite removed from the squad. Rather they do everything possible to keep you included, you're really removed. And um, your mindset during those times is the difference on on how you're going to come back. And a lot of guys struggle with that. Um, but I had a great support network around me at Leinster, um, you know, from back office staff to strength and conditioning staff that, and and coaches that keep you involved. So they're always hard to deal through, but um, I deal with sort of injuries, and I guess that'd be the lows. And what did you find throughout the couple you had that was like the right mindset to have? Matt, I um, I just said. Um, bugger it, I'm coming back in half the time. <laughs> and that was always my mindset. If someone, if a physio or a doctor or coming back from surgery said, you're, 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 this is six weeks minimum, I'd say like, fuck that, I'm coming back in three. Um, and just sort of went on the attack, really. Um, I, I guess you your mind plays such an important part in, in how you overcome anything. Um and it's no different to winning Europe. Um, you can win Europe Europe, or win Pro 14s and then you can sit there and soak it all in and enjoy the moment and continue the enjoyment far too long before you see the next team creeping up. Or you can say, sweet, done that, let's go get another one. Um, and I think when you've had a taste of winning, that's that mindset you take on board to go, cool, yeah, we've done it once, let's go getting it again. Um, and I remember sitting in changing rooms with you know, Brian O'Driscoll and Johnny Sexton and, and you win a championship and you go, cool, sweet, let's go win next week. Um, and that's what you want to be surrounded by because the same can happen in losing. If you lose and then continue to lose and then get used to it, that just becomes a habit. Um, and I never wanted that sort of mindset to creep in. So I was always just like, you know what, go on the attack. Um, and that's that's just down to what your mind is telling you. So like even after those finals and just always it was getting excited about the next challenge in front of you and not sitting back. Yeah. Oh man, you can't sit back. The minute you sit back is when you get overtaken by someone else. Um, you let your guard down for a little bit. And I think, you know, you get a taste of winning and you, you, you the jubilation of lifting a trophy and, you know, running around a field and popping bottles of champagne. It's that best moment of a season because every single choice and every single lifestyle decision you've made along the way every little up and down um you get a real real small moment of of celebrating that um but as soon as that moment's done um you it's important to sort of understand what you've done take on point what's been achieved and then just go focus on the next challenge because it's always just around the corner and i think that is the beauty about sport um, being at the top is very lonely because everyone else wants your head. Um, and that's a cool feeling to have because it means that um, everyone is after you, really. So you just got to stay out ahead. Yeah, it's probably a good and bad thing in that. Bad because everyone's like, it's your everyone else's biggest game when they play against you. But yep. then probably a good thing in that it creates a bit of an aura, doesn't it? And that you can kind of walk a bit different, play a bit different, and. Yeah, you've got to, um, it's always good to be grounded um, and always good to know that someone is going to try and take your head off and wants your scalp. Um, and I see that now, you know, Leinster don't lose too many games. Um, not That's not being arrogant, but it's just sort of the, the culture up there and what they're trying to do. But if they do um, get beaten, the other team is celebrating like it's they've won a trophy. Um, that just adds fuel to the fire um, for the people that sort of aren't involved or, you know, the the rest of the squad, you know, and it's, it is lonely being at the top, but you wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Um, and that's what keeps you on your toes. And that's what pushes the coaches to be more innovative. Um, you know, that makes the coaches keep evolving. And if you're part of that environment, it's pretty awesome to be a part of because it's continuously changing. And it's continuously evolving and there's just a drive to be better. And that's, um, you know, that's down to the culture at the end of the day. 
And how did you get that going? Like you would have been there kind of at the turning point a little bit. Um, yeah, look, a lot of the hard work had probably been done by the likes of Michael Checker and the, and the, the three years prior to me being there. Um, you know, I wasn't involved with that, but I was involved with um, the year that Leinster got the, the scalp off their back and won Europe for the first time. And only then, after winning, did I understand how much it meant to the guys that had put in the hard works. Um, you know, uh, Gordon Darcy, um, Brian O'Driscoll, uh, Shane Horgan, Malcolm O'Kelly, all these Leinster um, icons, Gervin Dempsey, that had done all the hard work. Um, it was only then that I really truly understood the magnitude of what it was. But what it does is once you win, you just want that feeling again and you won't stop at anything to get there. Um, and fortunately, you know, we had successful years to come. And I think um, one of the biggest thing for me was I, I really hoped that when I left the place, um, things got even better and everyone got better, the environment got better and they continued on winning. And they've, they've won the Pro 14 every year, you know, James Lowe, Jamison Gibson Park, um, all these other guys have all stepped up and pushed on, um, which is awesome. And, you know, that's a sign of things going really, really well is when you leave an environment, things get better. Um, that means that you've, you know, you're sort of added to the legacy at least. Um, if you leave and things fall apart, you know, then you haven't left anything at all. So, um, you know, the fact that Johnny and, you know, all the other players there, the young guys have stepped up and pushed on at a place like Leinster, it's a sign of a, a really competitive culture um, and a growing culture, which is which is huge. Yeah, for sure. And with international rugby, you got played a game for Fiji. Talk to me about that side of things. Oh, look, that was um, that was way back in the two thousand three World Cup. You know, it's before I had um, I pushed into the Blues, and it was it was early days. As I say, you know, my journey was. Um, wasn't really taking it too seriously. And that happened before, you know, I had made the blues um, and we had just won a final in Wellington that I was a non-traveling reserve for. And I just got the call up to say, hey, do you want to come to a World Cup? Um, again, I did was, you know, pretty immature back then around understanding the ramifications of what it would do. Um, you know, being 20 years old and being told you can go to a World Cup in Australia, you know, it's, um, pretty tempting, and how do you not turn that down, you know? Um, so I went over and did that, and, you know, I came on in the 80th, 81st minute or whatever it was, missed the tackle, and that was it. Um, and, you know, I didn't think too much about it, you know. Um, I I didn't, I wasn't in the mindset of, like, this is, this is going to, you know, be a career for me, or I, I would know what my path was like. And it probably wasn't for probably 18 months post that, that I realized um, what I had just done, you know. Um, but luckily, again, you know, being surrounded by good people at the Blues, you know, the likes of Joe Schmidt and David Nusifora at the time and the powers of B, you know, they really invested in me and gave me a shot to say, hey, you know, no, we do want you here. You know, they had to go into fight to um, even back then to get me involved or included in a Blues squad. And, and i got to thank them immensely because, you know, my career could have gone completely differently if I didn't um, wasn't surrounded by good people that sort of invested in me. And so when you say, you know, what you've done is because you've become like a foreign player in New Zealand then? Yeah, so like back then the rules were very different. So like, um, you know, if you're a foreign player um, or played for a foreign country, then... Uh, in Super Rugby back then, I think you are only allowed two uh, non-eligible players per squad. And that was like per squad of 28. So, um, and even then, if you were blocking a potential All Black in a potential position, then the NZRU could overturn that and overrule that. Um, and if my name was down as a 10 on paper for the Blues and I would have been blocking the likes of... Uh, Luke McAllister or later on uh, Nick Evans, you know, then that's not a good thing. Um, so when I say go into bat with me, I know, um, you know, the night before the squads were announced and they had sort of a draft back then and the naming of the squads, I know that, uh, I know for a fact that Joe Schmidt and David Musafora um, went into bat with me and backed me um, the, the years that they were there. And, 
as I say, if it wasn't for them doing that, um, my career could have gone a very different direction. And so why why did you not play again? Like, did you like feel tied to Fiji or not not much or no nah, nah, not really like i um as i say like i've really got this deep down burning desire to you know to uh give back to the people that invest in you and as i said like when i realized you know blues and rugby could be my career and and what they went into bat with me i felt this real big loyalty to repay them and you know if i was then to go and jet off and play for mm. Fiji here, play for Fiji there. It sort of took away, you know, that loyalty that I had for them. Um, and when I commit when I commit to something, you know, I never want loyalty to be forever gone in professional sports. I do know that it's 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 changed the shape as professional sports, but like I was I was born and bred in Auckland, loved playing for Auckland and loved playing for the Blues. And I had no desire to play for anyone else in New Zealand. Um, no different to my time at Leinster, you know. Michael Checker flew all the way down to New Zealand to uh, meet with me. We had a handshake deal and, you know, I was committed to, you know, going to Leinster and giving it my all and buying into the culture. Um, again, you know, if I was to step away in November Internationals and then um, Pacific Nation Cups and then the June Internationals, I would have been gone and, you know, that wasn't what I was um, asked to go to Leinster to do. So, you know, I had, I've got massive loyalty to checks and, and repaying that also. And that's, again, why I didn't step back in and uh, play for Fiji. And it wasn't anything against Fiji. It was just more of my loyalty to the people that invested in me, really. Yeah, no, it makes, makes perfect sense when you say it there, like with the autumn, with all the different windows throughout and mm. you were just going all in with the Blues, with Leinster. Yeah, yeah. And even like lastly on it, but like with World Cups, it was just you once again were just like, I'm just all in, like versus because that must have been a bit of a. Um, yeah, man, I'm just I, I just all in and committed, really. Um, you know, if I was to step away and be gone for six months, you know, um, I I was more like, no, I need to be here and I need to be here for the team that invested in me and supported me. And that was sort of an awesome time to to step up i guess um or yeah or ask everyone else to sort of step up and understand the opportunities that there because when they step away you know there's still a massive responsibility when you're when you're committed to a club like leinster and committed to the culture and committed to the people um it doesn't matter if there's internationals away or you know if you're playing smaller games during international windows the expectation is to deliver and to live to deliver that high standard and that's sort of the only way I thought and um, sort of encouraged a lot of, uh, you know, the younger guys to think like that. And I hope it, I hope it's done it to a point. No, hundred percent. That's yeah. Something that is really powerful. Like Leinster lose 20 players, but yourself and others that would be there in those off weeks, this, the standard still was high and is high now. Yeah, that's um, man. I, and that's, that's the, that's that drive of, of, and the culture. That's, that's what makes that you can't, magically turn that on and turn it off um that's having some really genius coaches and the likes of leo cullen and stuart lancaster and felipe contopomi it's those guys uh set that and drive that and that's there's so many layers to coaching there's so much psychology in all of it um and you know that replicated in a culture that's not fit and doesn't have a growth mindset you know it might not work but that's what they it's what I know Leinster focus on immensely is is all those things off the playing field that um, make a difference, really. What are some of the things that does make Leo Cullen the genius coach he is? No ego. There's zero ego um, as a player, as a person, as a coach. Um, by simply having that, it just opens up endless opportunities to bring in new ideas um his own ideas uh willingness to change um i've seen and had a lot of influence from a lot of different coaches that you know egos can get in the way but for someone as humble as him to um you know bring in the likes of sir graham henry to bring in the likes of stuart lancaster you know other people's egos and mentalities wouldn't have been able to do that where he's so forward thinking um he is not just thinking about 
you know, the game this weekend. He's thinking about how this affects um, the turnaround of the quarters, of the semis, of the finals. Then he's also thinking about, well, in this next World Cup cycle, in three years' time, this is probably where we need to, um, this is probably where we're going to struggle and this is probably where we need some help. So you imagine a coach that is only worrying about week to week and worried about winning because he hasn't got the support above or below him. You know, they're going week to week. Leo Cullen's going year to year um, and then beyond. And, you know, a lot of that is down to having no ego, but being really, really diligent and smart around his planning. And so he has been, well, one of the things been smart in is getting good people around him like the other coaches so that he can take a little bit of a step back and look at a bigger picture as well as doing, doing a bit day to day. Yeah, you know, some some coaches try and do everything, um, you know, but I think, you know, really smart leaders and smart coaches in all walks of life surround themselves with um, really good people and the really good skill sets to, to, to really benefit their own. And, you know, I've seen that and, you know, there's so many learnings from Stuart Lancaster. He's still a mentor to me today. Um, and I know that Leo's had a lot of learnings and they both work really, really well together. Um, then you bring in, you know, the genius of someone like Felipe Contepomi to add to the mix, um, they're not just going out and getting anyone and they're not just opening the door to get to anyone. They're going, well, how do we grow as coaches? Um, what do we add to this environment? Who best to do that? And are they the right fit? So there's, as I say, they're very smart in who they go out and get, um, why they go out and get someone and you know, understand that person as a person to begin with. Do you have any thoughts yourself of stepping back into the game or going into a role like that coaching? Man, I'd love to at some point. I'd love to at some point. Um, you know, I've, I've had all these learnings and all these leaders and all this great influence along the way that I get to um, impact a different environment. And, um, you know, that's what I'm doing now. And, you know, sort of led, leading a team of that was six that we're now 16 and, and, you know, dealing with different demographics, different genders, different people, different mindsets and trying to bring that all together. So I'm really motivated and doing what I do right now. Um, but there'll be a time where I'd love to step back into, into coaching. Um, I love the whole psychology mindset and tactics side of coaching and how to really bring that out in people or, or harness an environment first and foremost to actually do that. Um, but the one thing with sport um, is it's so emotionally taxing, and you feel so sucked in immediately when you're when you're part of a, a part of an environment. And I've seen that here in New Zealand, in the in the few environments that I've stepped back into to sort of you know hand, lend a helping hand. Um, you, it consumes you immediately, and that's what that's I guess the beauty of what sport does. But um, I think I'd have to be in the right mindset to actually give up my weekends and. Uh, <laughs> to actually do that and um yeah the time will come but I'm, I'm not there yet how have you found managing non-athletes like in in that environment and working in that like leadership team building all that kind of side compared to in the sporting environment oh it's um it's different but the same um you know when you uh when you're dealing with a sport environment, an elite sport environment, um, you know, whether that's a squad of 28, 40 or 50, um, even in that spectrum, you have vast other ends of people at different ends of the spectrum. Do you know what I mean? But you're mm -hmm. all, you know, this top sort of 5% all heading a goal in the right direction. And that's the beauty about sport. And what I've found in businesses, um, there are so many people more experienced than you. <laughs> I, I came out of 15 years um, of rugby into into a, a finance where the person sitting next to me is five years younger than me and they've got 15 years of experience. So it's like, check your shit at the door. These people know more than you. Um, but I guess you've got to, people are motivated differently. Um, in sport, everyone's motivated for a single goal and a, and a single trophy um, or a single a single purpose in, in business, it's, it's, there's no start and finish. Um, how you motivate people week to week, how you drive culture, um, you've got to be, you got, I've got to do it differently. Um, that I have found some things work, some things don't, but I guess exposing um, 
people in the real world to sort of the, the mindsets of, of professional sports has its benefits. Um, the whole cliche about, oh, you're, you're involved in sport, you'll excel in the corporate world, that's a load of shit. Um, that, you know, you carry through certain skills um, and certain mindsets and certain ethics that do work, but like industry knowledge, when you haven't ever been exposed to it, you're so far behind and that's what you've got to catch up and learn. But there's there's cool things Um exposing people to sort of growth mindsets and um, just how to think about pressure, all of a sudden you see it translate into their day-to-day job. Um, and there are real similarities between sport and the, and the real world. That's cool. And yeah, it's interesting in that like stepping away. So you haven't essentially gone into a, a certain job. It's, is it kind of creating a job like that best suits your talents, like your kind of being a financial advisor, but also helping those around you to be their best selves? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that's you know I'm in I'm in pretty much in charge of sixteen people now, and um, you know I look at the real similarities of a of a shared office space and like a changing room, and going well, there's so many different dynamics here, you know, so many people have different problems every given day of the week, whether you've got family, whether you're single, whether you're you know fresh out of uni or experienced in your own role, so the, the spectrum is way wider. But the goal in creating a, a really cool niche environment um, has a lot of similarities to a changing room, you know. Can't compare them, um, you know, apples for apples. Uh, there's so many different areas, but a lot of what I do and what I try to bring together um, reflects on sort of high performance, really. And then you mentioned as well, like dealing with pressure and helping the people you work with now deal with it. And in your career, how did you, like one thing that just comes to mind is like you stepping in as a kicker when you weren't a regular kicker in Champions Cup finals? Mm. Man, I think um, you've got to learn that through your career. Um, you know, mindfulness did, did wonders for me. Um, and putting things into perspective um, does wonders for me. Um you know, at the end of the day, we're chasing an egg-shaped ball around or trying to kick it through the goalposts. You know, there's there's wars going on in the world and there's starvation and unemployment and everything, you know. Um, you know, I'm not thinking about that when I'm trying to kick a goal, but I definitely learned, um, learned from a lot of good people how to stay present in a game of rugby. Um, and goal-kicking is just a completely separate game within a game. Um and, you know, yes, there's a lot of pressure on on you to step in, in those occasions. But at the end of the day, I just really had to dial down and focus on my process and focus on my my walk back and my setup and, and block everything else out. Um, I couldn't do that at the start of my career. Um, I would have been thinking about 10 different things. But I think just through experience and, I guess, failure, um, you learn how to do things better. You know, I've I remember standing at the RDS and, you know, with a goal, uh, you know, I pretty much had to throw the ball over the post and um, I've turned around, walked back. I'm thinking about the kickoff and I've hit the upright and it's bounced back and nearly hit me in the head. I'm going, ah, like, <laughs> why did you do that? That single, that single moment gave me so many learnings for the year ahead. Um, so, yeah, you, you learn a lot of that. Um, you know, you can practice it as much as you like, but until you're thrown into a precious situation and either, you know, succeeded or not, that's that's where you take those learnings. And what mindfulness practices did you bring in during the career? Um, oh, look, a lot of a lot of meditation to a point, um, and you know, meditation has evolved through centuries and people's understanding of meditation and what that looks like um, is so it's, it's just a big open world really. Um, but I, I had my own sort of self journey and self sort of knowledge around, you know, different books I've read and understanding different things, but man, I, I practice it daily. Um, I'm a real morning person, um, but you know, morning person with, four young girls trying to find a moment to actually meditate yet to yet to find your ways to to do that and a lot of miners often you know get to training early and find that quiet space um i did that a lot um 
you know, I learned some really good skills from the likes of Joe Schmidt and how to sort of stay present in rugby, you know. Um, it's really hard to run out on a rugby field and um, think, man, this is an 80-minute game. And then even if you break it in half and go, oh, I've just got to focus till half time. Well, I was like, well, if I can break that 40-minute game into sort of 41-minute battles, then, you know, there's not the ball's not in play very long. So you only have to really focus for really small snippets of time. Uh, the rest of the time you can actually, I learned to look up to the crowd and soak in the environment and then go, cool, now I'm back on and uh, focus back in for the 17 seconds that the ball is in play. Um, and as long as, then you can just focus on the one job you've got to do, which is like catch the ball or kick this goal or uh, make this tackle or hit this ruck. It, it stopped you thinking about 40 minutes of rugby or 80. It just made you think about one thing. And I think that's that helped me out a lot because it stopped you trying to overcomplicate things, really. You know, we tend to overcomplicate a lot of things in rugby where you just have to focus on doing your job and doing it really well. That's class. I've never heard of that before. You know, you hear of win the first 10 or win the first 15, and you essentially made it an American football game. Mate, win the, win the moment in front of you, that one step in front of you, you know, that keeps you keeps you so present in what your role is. You know, I'm not worrying about... You know, different being a captain, you're thinking about other things, but deep down, you know, you've just got to worry about the next step in front of you and do that right. And it really helped in overcoming if you made a mistake. Because if you made a mistake, um, if you're young, that might annoy you for the rest of the half. And you might only be thinking about that, oh, what are they going to say on Monday? You know, oh, I kicked that out on the full. That drags into the next play and the next play and the next play. If you can just park that and go, oh, I've just got to worry about the next step in front of me or this next segment, you're moved on already and you won't make that mistake again. So I think, yeah, bugger concentrating for 80 minutes, let alone 40. Just worry about the the, the short burst in front of you, really. Yeah. That's brilliant. Um, thanks for your time. Just two quick questions before you go. But what would your, Absolutely. like as a utility back, as someone who didn't know every week where you were playing, what would your kind of extra sessions have been like? Or what would you, how would you have focused on things to work on? Oh, man, I, I, I always tried to sort of keep like an 80-20 rule and focus on like 80% of those core skills that you do really, really well. Um, and then that 20% of the week, it would be the differences in those real fine differences to be, am I going to be receiving box kicks or should I be focused on, you know, more defense at being a 12 or do I need to be and tactically sound at 15 and, and 10, but I would always try and focus on like those core skills and just do those really, really well because they're the majority of the game at the end of the day. Um, it didn't matter what position I was in. Um, you know, whether I'm right right wing, left wing, whether I'm kicking off my left foot or my right foot, like the majority of times, all of those are those real basics and just do the real basics really, really well. And that that's, it didn't matter what position I was in. They were just the fundamentals, really. Yeah, good stuff. And lastly, if you could relive one day in your career, what would it be? Ooh, um, I think that my final day in Dublin after we won the Pro 14, um, I planned to play an 80-minute game, but I lasted about nine minutes, really. Um, if it wasn't for Rory O'Loughlin saving my ass for the last month of my career, um, uh, uh, you know, if it wasn't for him stepping in and having done all the training and pushing and saving my ass, um, I'd take my hat off to him. But I think that day just captured my whole experience at Leinster, really. Um, it's the only day my girls ever came, my family ever came onto the field with me. Um and it was just a moment that I got to soak up. And we did it in Dublin, which was pretty, and in the Leinster region, which was pretty important. So um, it's a memorable day, um, you know, mainly because my girls got to run out on the field. And it was a nice sunny day in Dublin, which was rare as well. So, yeah, I'd relive that day any time. Great stuff. Well, thanks a million for your time. Really appreciate it. Been brilliant chatting. Cheers. Brilliant insights there and lots of great tips throughout. If you want to listen to more Leinster players, I had Robbie Henshaw on a couple of months ago and also Noel McNamara, who coached the Leinster under-18s, 20s and A-side and was also the academy manager 
up until recently before moving to the Sharks in South Africa last year. As you could probably tell during the pod, I really enjoyed hearing Iza's strategy to staying present in games by breaking the game up into plays or breaking plays. That is such a cool way to approach it. It's so important to have tools to help you be present during games because that's where the flow state exists. That's when you play your best rugby. If during a game you're thinking about the try you scored or the mistake you made, your head is in the past. And if you're worried about the way the wind is going to be in the second half or if you're getting excited about what the final score might be, anything like that then your mind's in the future and these patterns of thinking are like ingrained in you or ingrained in most of us anyway in that we get frustrated angry annoyed or whatever about something that's already happened in a game the calls the ref has made the mistake you made the try they scored whatever it is it's so common to think about those things Likewise, in the future, worry about things that will happen in the second half or what will happen later in the game or all these different things that can go through your mind. But you have to just let go of all of that. Just stop worrying, stop caring, stop giving energy to all of that. And it can seem weird, daunting to do so because you're just so used to the other way, to have all that stuff going on in your head while you're playing games that not doing it would seem alien and it's not easy either when you try and be present you say you learn different techniques um i've heard another one richie mccall's was like tying his shoelaces so when he went down to his boots and started tying his laces he connected with his breath and then became present again so when he felt that he was getting a bit flustered the all blacks talk about flustered frustrated or whatever that is as a redhead and then being calm and cool and present is a blue head so whenever he felt that he was moving towards the red he did that to center himself and bring himself to the present moment but yeah i just think it's really important for you to try to let go of all of those things that go in your on in your head while you're playing and even when you're training too training's a way to practice obviously physical skills but also mental skills like you can practicing these things during training so when you do find that your mind is going that way that you just nearly stop caring about it just go i don't care and just forget about it and just don't worry another way for you to think about what it feels like to be present while playing rugby is over the summer if you go playing touch in the sun with your friends and are just having a laugh playing whatever 5v5 and you're just having a crack well you probably have a smile on your face you'll be laughing you'll be trying things out you won't be over analyzing everything well hopefully you won't and there's a good chance that you'll just be carefree and you'll be having the crack and it's in that mindset that you play your best rugby so you probably think then i certainly did this in the past where it comes to a training in maybe a match week and then you think oh i gotta be really serious now and then when it comes to the game oh i gotta be 10 times more serious and you start piling all this pressure on yourself oh and i gotta be really good today i can't make any mistakes today wow such a big game this is really important everyone's expecting me to do xyz i can't let anyone down and you just start piling pressure on yourself and that's when you freeze up that's when you tighten up and then you do make a mistake and then you get on yourself and it's just a a bad spiral so yeah try to think about the kind of mindset that you would have playing touch with your friends over the summer and then bring that into team trainings when you go back at it if you're an ambitious player want to avoid pitfalls along the way and be stronger mentally i do an extra podcast where i chat about all those things I answer your questions and help you be the best player that you can be. You can sign up for the extra content on patreon.com forward slash offfieldrugby and the link is in the show notes. It's the off season right now for a lot of players and this is the best time to make improvements in your game. I mentioned playing touch in the sun with the friends 
even in simple things like that, there are things that you can do to really accelerate your development as a player so that when next season comes around or preseason that you're really hitting the ground running. So if you want next season to be better than last, you can sign up on patreon.com forward slash off field rugby. Cheers for clicking in today. Please send the pod on some friends and enjoy the rest of your day.